everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Strip by Sia, your podcast for strippers, sex workers, and all the fancy naked people in between. I am your host, Steph Sia, aka Kim G on stage. I am the host of the show. I bring new guests every single week onto the show to bring the real lived uh, stories and experiences of sex workers in our community. And that is a global community. So I have guests on from where I am, Canada. We have a guest today from the USA. We've also spoken to people from Singapore, Philippines, the UK, all over the world. So yes, this is a global issue and it's a global community. So I wanted to try to encompass everyone and as much as I can and as accurately as I can. I am a sex worker, so I am a stripper. I'm also a former sugar baby and a digital content creator where I am currently most active because the world is still shut down in my part of the world. And I created this podcast to help destigmatize sex work and to just normalize the conversation because it's an important conversation to be had. Whew, okay, so that was a big, <laughs> like normal little spiel. I am bringing on a really cool guest today that I connected with in one of my groups online, and she is a writer. She is located in Brooklyn, New York, and she is, I want to say, almost a former sex worker. She's still peppering in with sex work as a stripper, and she's also a fantastic writer, and that's where we connected. She wrote this fantastic piece on... um, basically like everything basically child sexual abuse we also speak about the uh stop internet sexual exploitation act we also speak about uh familial trafficking oh gosh it's it's just so much i have so many notes and i really don't understand how we're gonna get through everything in this episode she's also um autistic as well which we're going to talk a little bit about um sex work and disability later so it's going to be a really really big episode and i keep referring to this person as she she goes by the name reese piper and i feel like i've talked long enough reese are you there <laughs> Yeah, I'm here. Thank you for the introduction. Nice. Oh my gosh, you're so welcome. And I'm so happy to finally connect with you and like speak with you today because we were just kind of like talking back and forth on um, the online platform that we're connected with. And again, I just can't stop praising you for this um, beautiful, personal, um, and just really um, intensely intimate piece that you wrote regarding sex work and child sexual abuse and I forgot to mention obviously trigger warning here there's going to be um a lot of mentions of sexual uh, abuse sexual abuse oh my gosh sorry guys it's eight o'clock in the morning right now and I haven't spoken to a human and Reese is the first person I'm speaking to so my apologies if I'm stumbling over my words this morning um but uh yeah there's um a bit of a trigger here so if you are not comfortable with this topic feel free to skip this one um but if you um are open to this hearing this kind of um topic and conversation please listen on but um Reese um I gave you a bit of an intro but how, how did I do <laughs> did I do oh, okay you did great thank you yeah um I think in the process of retiring is a good um sort of description so yeah I was a stripper <laughs> for almost five years my god I can't believe it's been that long it goes by so quick so quickly um, and before that I worked in porn for a year like um just behind the camera 
and in front of the camera. Okay. And yeah, right now I'm working on a book about autism and sex work. Yes. Oh my God, I forgot to mention that. Congratulations on your book deal. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. It's been, it's been a journey. <laughs> That's incredible. And I can't wait to hear all about it. And I, I'm sure we're going to get into that later on today. But oh gosh, I mean, wow. Yeah, you posted that article and I was like, whoa, this is huge. This is, and then we don't, like, we just don't hear a lot about how I'm going to refer to it as Sisea. S-I-S-E-A, Stop Internet Sexual Exploitation Act. I I mean, that's relatively new. I feel like that came out in December of 2020-ish. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The end of last year. Mm-hmm. And it hasn't, like, gotten as much traffic, and I'm, like, worried that people are going to, like, it's not going to get traffic until it passes. You know, like, right yeah. now, like, it's almost like it, it could be just, like, snuck through because people aren't protesting it. And mm-hmm. it's, like, a really, it's a censorship law. Yes. Yes. Do you want to, bre- I don't know if you want to briefly go into that um, right now or maybe later or, or do you want to go maybe in chronological order about like, you know, uh, gosh, how you got started in sex work, your, your attitudes towards sex work, your family, your story, your autobiography <laughs> you're about to tell us. <laughs> yeah, chronological. It sounds good. Yeah, let's do that because then I just don't want to be like going back and forth because there's just a lot here. Cool. So... <laughs> But yeah, if you want to go ahead, um, take us wherever you want to start, whether it's you as a child, um, you starting a sex work, wherever you feel comfortable, wherever you want to begin. Yeah, feel free to go ahead. Yeah. Um, so I, when I was 23, I was like, had just gotten out of, well, no, not just gotten out of, but I had been like heartbroken for like about a year and I just couldn't get over this really terrible relationship that I had been in for my early 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, so I went on a vacation to New Zealand and I thought like, okay, let me just take a break and, you know, reset. Um, and when I was there, I met my now best friend who was from England and she convinced me to come move to Melbourne with her, Melbourne, Australia. What? And oh my God. And I was there, cool. that's when I became, what? Oh, that's really cool. Sorry. Continue. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. So I, that's when I became... A stripper was over there. Mm, okay. um, first, though, I worked in porn, and it wasn't, I just was, like, an admin at this company. Okay. Because um, they needed, like, um, yeah, they just, I didn't even realize kind of what it was. I thought it was just, like, an amateur photography business. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> um, and wow. then, yeah, from there, I realized I can't do admin work. So mm-hmm. I was like, okay, I might as well then get in front of the camera. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my god! Secretary work is not for me. No, no. I mean, <laughs> I work a I work a full vanilla job in my in my day job, and yeah, uh, some yeah, admin work sometimes is just like the death of me. <laughs> it is, especially when you do like sex work because it's so you don't really have to multitask. Mm-hmm. Yes, you know yeah. our jobs like don't require. It's just like one on one and. Most, like secretary work is like you have to have the phone and then you have to do like you know excel files at the same time and it just yeah it was a bit of a disaster but it kind of like desensitized me to the industry a bit and then I was mm. like I wasn't too keen on being behind the camera um mm. but I think there was something more about stripping that appealed to me I think it was the camaraderie like I wanted the friendships like yeah. the, the, like all the girls seem to have yeah, totally. That's something that's really real. And we've we've definitely spoken that that a lot. Something I miss and 
yeah, you're one hundred percent correct in that um, camaraderie for sure. That bond. <laughs> yeah, and just like the fun of it in the beginning. Yeah. Like, I mean, over the years, it kind of became less fun, but sort of the silliness of the strip club, like, kind of like you don't know what's going to happen, and you know, there's always like one girl talking about like the dressing room drama. <laughs> yeah. It's so entertaining and so entertaining. I um. <laughs> yeah, I really kind of um, lost myself in it in a good way. I needed it, and I needed to kind of lose myself in the beginning, and then. I just decided that it was a good fit for me, the Mm -hmm. income, the time off. Um, And so when I moved home, I continued. Moved home to New York, I continued being a stripper. Mm -hmm. How were those two worlds? Like, how was stripping in Australia and how was stripping versus, like, stripping in America? Because I know that we definitely have some Australian listeners (laughs) here as well, so I'm curious to hear what your experience was. Yeah, I mean, I felt like Australia was like a dream. (laughs) It was like, (laughs) I mean, I kind of worked at this, like, apparently it was like a a club that wasn't really properly regulated. Oh, no. And so, like, it was all we had were, like, house fees, and that was it. There were, like, no other rules. And, like, we could just kind of leave when we wanted. That's pretty sweet. All the money that we made was ours. We just had to pay the $40 house fee. And so that's what I kind of like wow. thought stripping was. Yeah, that's pretty good. That's kind of like Wild Wild West Club. <laughs> but I mean, I learned other, you know, most clubs have a lot of rules and regulations and you have to follow them. Yes. Um, yes. And yeah, when I got New York, stripping is really tough. I imagine it's like the same in London or in maybe in like San Francisco. And so that was like a really rough transition. Like having to wear a gown and then having to sort of like compete with women who look like supermodels and you know I'm pretty yeah. like girl next door I don't really wear a lot of makeup mm-hmm. I'm like not stick skinny and so yeah I that's kind of like where I I guess learn to really socialize and like learn to sort of be a great conversationalist with customers because that's kind of like how I learned to make money in that mm-hmm. environment where like Australia I felt like was a little bit more like let's just have fun and party mm interesting yeah definitely very vastly different for sure <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh my gosh so okay and you're in do you strip in vancouver or you have yeah. strips all over the no just vancouver for me i know sometimes like when you start here in sure. vancouver you have to like go to a lot of the smaller towns in our province or even sometimes out of province but I was like really adamant that I only want to strip in downtown because I also had that vanilla job as well at the time so I was like I can't travel out like I can't do this full full time Mm -hmm. so yeah and I was it was um I guess I was kind of privileged in that way because not everyone had that experience and I acknowledge that so Uh I had this kind of like cleansed view and I also like went into stripping because I was also well I mean I've always been an exhibitionist but I just didn't have any place to <laughs> showcase that <laughs> and then I was I totally um, understand that <laughs> yeah like yeah I was having these ex- exhibitionist uh, like tendencies and then um I started pole dancing because I was like I'm not gonna go on stage unless I know how to do something and yeah six months later ish yeah six months later ish I started on stage so yeah and it was yeah 
different because I just thought like all the money's going to be on stage everyone's going to tip me on stage it's going to be great and then like you're like oh no honey <laughs> no I know I what, what a shock that was when I realized like I have to actually talk I was like wait yeah. what <laughs> yeah and I'm like a little bit shy too like not on the sh- on this show but like sometimes when I I'm talking to people that I don't know and I'm just like, oh, I have to talk to this person. I'm like, oh, the anxiety creeps in. And <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot of dancers are shy. I think it's like a way to, we like learn to socialize in the club. It's like sort of like a mask. Oh, yeah, 100%. It's, I don't know. Yeah, like definitely like a mask. And I mean, we play different roles in the club and I try to be as close to my personality as I can. Um, but sometimes okay. it's just like, I, I just... I just hate VIPing, but I mean, I'm just not that good at it. That's just what it is. <laughs> I like dancing more, so. <laughs> yeah, it's fun to like um, fleet around from like customer to customer, like where some of the VIP are in there for like hours. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> how, um, I have a question for you. Um, how was it navigating stripping as, as um, a person that has, um, Oh my god, I can't speak this morning. As a person who is autistic, Jesus, I cannot speak. <laughs> yeah. Well, when I first started, I didn't know um, mm. that I was. So, oh. yeah, I knew that something, like, I've always had an idea that something was off or, like, wrong about me or I just that I saw things very differently. Mm-hmm. Um, I've had health issues my whole life. Like, I've had seizures, I've really poor sleep, um, mm-hmm. and, like, I have face blindness. So, like, if I, like, met you in a crowd, I probably wouldn't be able to discern who you are. I mean, I'm good at, like, reading, like, memorizing people's tattoos. Oh. But, like, I can't read people's faces. Um, so, I think stripping was kind of, like, the first time I was a, really concretely aware that there was, like, an issue. And I think it helped me see because, you know, to make money, you have to talk to customers. Mm-hmm. And you have to have, like, back and forth conversation. Mm-hmm. And so, like... My first like couple weeks on the job, I was like, oh, I don't know how to have a back and forth conversation. And like, there was just like sort of tidbits like this where I was like, I can't remember any of the regular spaces. And oh. it, um, it kind of just became really clear to me in like a really great way that like something was going on. And that kind of like set me on my journey of trying to figure out what it was. But I would say that stripping, like, is, I hate to say this word, but I would say that, like, it saved me, really. It taught me how to socialize. Mm-hmm. It taught me how to, like, read people. It taught me how to stand up for myself. And I would say it was a really great fit for who I was at that time. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I've heard that for a lot of other autistic sex workers, that they find it that it's, like, a really helpful, like, in terms of helping them, like, live in their bodies and, like, learning who they are and, like, navigating certain situations. Wow. Yeah, so you also volunteer at um, an autistic center. I think that's what I read on your website. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and how how has that has that helped you in any way as well in terms of like understanding how your body works, why you may be feeling certain things, etc. Yeah, I mean, it's taken, like, years of therapy and knowledge and, like, because there just isn't a lot of information on, like, what autism looks like in women. Mm-hmm. Not just that, like, what autism looks like in extroverts, you know, like, right. this concept that it's, like, only introverts have autism or only really quiet people, and I'm not, like, I'm really loud and, like, and, I mean, I can be quite inappropriate at times, and I think kind of, 
yeah, not only the stripping like help me because you can be as inappropriate as you want. So it's kind of like a safe space. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think over the years in therapy, like I've really kind of learned who I am, who my limitations are. And that's helped a lot tremendously, mm-hmm. I would say. Um, and it's good. So now I can kind of like explain how autism impacts me. So before it was just kind of like this weird thing that was like looming over me and I couldn't figure it out. Mm. yeah like you couldn't really put your finger on it it's just like okay something is a little bit different here you know yes yeah and other people see it too and that's was like the hardest thing like you know Reese is different and but everyone like I used to be like well what does that mean and then mm-hmm. like no one really could say it oh interesting so if you had people kind of commenting or trying to point it out were you not able to see what they were saying or maybe they just weren't verbalizing it because of were they maybe scared of telling you or? Um, I don't think they were scared, but I think it's like was seen as like a character flaw Mm. because like it was seen as like, I wasn't trying hard enough to pay attention or like if I like was looking away and wasn't looking at someone in the face that like I was being rude or, you know, if I, said something like really kind of you know I mean part of one of the hardest things I had to learn was that like I can't just say what's on my mind mm. so if I don't like my friend's shirt I can't just say like your shirt is ugly <laughs> you know, I don't want to hurt her feelings <laughs> yeah <laughs> um I mean Super. I can talk to customers that way so that was nice but <laughs> yeah <laughs> isn't that um, great <laughs> yeah so things like that little things and like my whole life I guess I thought that I was just like a bad person and then like realizing yeah that I had autism it's kind of like oh like this huge it was like a really big relief and it's like weight off my shoulders yeah to kind of see like what can I help and what can I not help and like where are my limitations and it also helps people like frame me in a way Mm -hmm. yeah of course that would hopefully uh, make more sense to you once you realize that and and how did you realize that or did you go to a doctor or or what happened, or when was that aha moment? It was around, like, my second year of dancing. So mm-hmm. I was diagnosed first with ADHD. So, mm-hmm. like, many dancers, I have, like, issues with the organization. Like, I, you know, struggle to show up on time. Mm-hmm. I struggle to, like, organize my schedule. You know, these are, this is also part of my disability. Also why dancing is great, because I don't have to keep a schedule. I don't have to multitask, things like that. But I was put on Adderall. Mm-hmm. as like sort of my first treatment kind of thing and that is when I think everything went a little crazy because I was using it like in the club I'm kind oh. of abusing it instead of like using it to like help me stay organized right I was just like partying in the club drinking on Adderall and mm-hmm. getting blackout and then after about a year of that I had a breakdown and that's when I started asking more answers about like what was going on yeah and really, I found out, like, through, you know, like, kind of, like, one of the groups that we're in. Like, you know, the kind of, like, the dancer group, but for women with ADHD. Oh, okay, and, great. Yeah, like, I started noticing on the groups that, like, a lot of the other women had autism. I was kind of like, huh. Oh. I didn't know that those things were connected. And then I started looking into, like, what autism looks like in women. And then I was like, oh, <laughs> oh, that's me. <laughs> You're like, that's me. <laughs> Wow. Um, but I waited a year and then I got diagnosed after that. 
Wow, that's that's incredible. Was this something that was apparent to you as a child or something that you've just kind of like, oh, well, it's just that's just how I am. And that's why maybe you didn't really pay attention too much until you were an adult. I, I, yeah, I knew that something was wrong. Like, there mm. was issues. There's always been issues with like friendships and maintaining friendships. I've always had close friends, but like they've always been like super codependent and mm. you know, there's been fighting. And so like, I guess I, and I can't do math, like was never able to do math. So I guess there was sort of, yeah, this just awareness. And again, I started having seizures when I was 13 mm, right. and no one could tell me like, what was going on. So that was like another thing. It was like, huh, like what is happening with me? Like, why is my body doing this? Like, why am I blacking out in the middle of school? And no one could tell me. Yeah. And I had gone through like all these tests and, but the thing is, is autism runs in families and mm-hmm. my, I'm a lot like my grandma and I'm a lot like my father. And so like a part of me was just like, it's just genetic. I'm just like weird, like my family. Hmm. That's really interesting. Really, really interesting. My nephew is autistic and he's still quite young. He's like, oh my God, how old is he now? Eight. (laughs) He's eight. But yeah, uh, similar to you, he was diagnosed with ADHD first and they didn't really know what was going on. They just thought he was like really hyperactive and he couldn't focus and just like had a lot of loud bursts and tantrums and stuff. And they're like, oh, well, he's just a kid. This is just going to go away. And then he was formally diagnosed um, a few years ago with autism, and that just kind of made sense. And now he has, like, like a dedicated teacher that works with him and stuff, and he's getting, like, the help and support he needed or needs, which I think is really, really important sometimes. So, yeah, especially in those, like, formative developmental years, I think that can... Definitely. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I kind of get, like, upset sometimes that, like, I didn't have that. But mm. I think I think it's come a long way. And I think back when, you know, I'm going to be 30 this year. So back if I had support when I was, like, eight, I think a lot of it was, like, quite harmful. And then I think now mm. it's more about, like, accommodating before it was, like, changing. Right. So, yeah, I mean, I guess I, yeah, I always say dancing is how I accommodated. That was, like, my support system. That's what I say for, like, my 20s. I love that. I think that's incredible. I think that's so awesome. (laughs) So cool. Um, You mentioned that this is a genetic thing, and this runs um, within your family. So you also mentioned your father and and your grandmother as well. I don't know if you want to start to shift in terms of, like, you know, family matters, um, the intimate details if you want to share about like sexual abuse and like the attitudes that your your mom had in general in terms of like yeah, yeah shifting towards that side of the conversation because <laughs> I thought that was really really yeah. interesting so yeah yeah I guess so a lot of it I had I don't think I really started writing about my family until I started writing my memoir mm. um and you know in the beginning like my first couple of months writing my memoir I allowed myself to just like free write and you know not use it outline and just kind of just like see what would come out but yeah just like allowing myself to free write and what I was really surprised by was like how much of like my family's history not like my life with my family but like my parents life before they had me kind of came out and like mm. how that impacted my life so yeah my book is about like being undiagnosed with autism while stripping mm, and a huge wow. part of that 
sort of book is like, how did I go so long without getting diagnosed? And right. like, where, where were my parents? And like, where, why didn't they say things? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, what I think really became apparent was that they were traumatized, like from their childhoods and like their trauma took up so much space mm-hmm. in the house that there wasn't a lot of room for me to have a problem. Um, and so like I learned, I think from a young age to kind of hide my issues, to kind of give them like more room. And yeah, I think I wasn't really ready to kind of separate myself because, you know, writing memoir is tough because it's like yeah. the blood and sweat. Yeah, and I think now it was, I was like ready at this like year to kind of talk about like what had happened to them. And, you know, my mother grew up quite poor, trailer park, and then the projects, um, mm-hmm. living in like a two bedroom with her four siblings. And she was the oldest, not the oldest. She had a brother who was blind. And so she was, and then they had three younger siblings. And so she was like responsible for taking care of all of them. Mm. Um, yeah, from like the time that we were, like the time that I was little, very young, some of my earliest memories of my mother are her telling me like, like no one is allowed to like touch you while you sleep. Like no one is allowed right. to come into the bathroom with you while you sleep. And it kind of became this like hypervigilance that was like held over me. Mm. Of, like all these men around me like were like potential predators. Like I wasn't allowed her near her great uncle. Um, right. Like I wasn't allowed in the rooms with my friend's brothers. And like, it wasn't really explained to me like what it was, mm-hmm. but you know, during like fights because, you know, it wasn't exactly the easiest relationship we had. Mm-hmm. You know, she would kind of be like, well, you know, you don't know how lucky you had it when I was your age. Like I was getting beat by and beaten, molested by my mom's boyfriends. And um, wow. so, yeah, I mean, I don't know the particulars exactly of what had happened to her or what exactly went on in their home. Yeah. But I do know that all of them were molested and, I believe by my grandma's boyfriends and I also suspect by her own father who they had when they were younger. So he oh. left when my mom was 12. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. And so my mom and dad met and when they were like teenagers, like late teenagers and they had us young. And so I don't, just don't think they ever really, she never really had the space. She just like jumped into motherhood and never yeah. really had the space to like process what happened. You know, I mean, I kind of had, like, vague details because it was, like, you know, I was raised in the 90s and everyone else was, like, worried about strangers. And my mom wasn't worried about strangers. She was worried about, like, the next-door neighbor. Yeah. She was worried about her uncle. Yeah. Totally. Which makes sense. I mean, like, the the whole stranger danger thing. Like, I mean, again, I studied criminology (laughs) back in my undergrad. And most of the times, um, the large majority of the time, it's going to be, like, by somebody that you know or somebody within like your circle you know so I mean your mom was kind of right in that kind of sense and of course with her own experience as well she I can see why she was super 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 protective of you and the people that you might spend your time with yeah she and um, I am grateful for that in a lot of ways um I do think sometimes it was like an overstep of boundaries and the way that mm-hmm. like secondhand trauma can be yeah um like too much information as a child but yeah yeah I am it's always kind of been in my head like even with like the trafficking rhetoric mm-hmm. like idea that like 
children are being like children are being harmed in their homes and like we do need to protect children but like the way we're doing it is not actually helping um Mm -hmm. yeah and I guess also too because a lot of the trafficking rhetoric is about women and I also grew up with the knowledge um that my father was molested as a child too Mm. and not I didn't know I don't know as much about what happened to him Mm -hmm. as I do my mother but yeah I from what I brief details I've like received over the years is that he was like groomed into like a multiple year long relationship with a neighbor and um kind of like almost like a Michael Jackson situation of his like alleged abuse okay yeah, that where I think my mom's is a bit more like violent. My dad's was um, like more subtly manipulative. Right. And yeah, so like that, that different kind of. Yeah, I guess the different sort of types of like harm yeah. from children and yeah, what that looks like. Yeah, so I guess like becoming a stripper and like experiencing all of this like witnessing and receiving all this like stripping is causing trafficking and stripping is like <laughs> part of this trafficking piece yeah like, wait but like is it <laughs> you know <laughs> um I know. yeah I guess it's always I wouldn't say that I really had until I sat down to write this article I don't think I really really thought about it as concretely as I wrote it but it's always kind of just been in my head like wait but like children are being harmed but like not here. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, no, no. I hear you. I hear you. Absolutely. Like it's, again, I've, I've spoken about this before. It's just like a lot um, of the times that is that sex workers just getting entangled with all these types of legislations that are aimed to protect children. But as you said, are they? Like, are they <laughs> trying to protect children or what are they actually doing here? What is the aim <laughs> for Sasta Festa, yeah, one of the exactly. Anthony Bells, right? It is. It feels really flimsy because it's like, yeah, I don't know if you have ever been like part of like, if you've ever experienced like a giant campaign, but like when I lived in New Orleans for Mardi Gras, I used to go every year for Mardi Gras. Mm-hmm. And the 2018, when I was there, they just launched this like huge anti strip club campaign and like in the name of like preventing trafficking and like, oh my God. You know, they were so worried about like, underage minors working in the club and like these like illegal syndicates and they raided all of our the clubs and they shut down business and like we were all thrusted into like poverty overnight like over a thousand dancers oh my god and then like there were no underage minors (laughs) i was like okay gosh what's happening yeah and especially like during mardi gras like that (laughs) that is like the busiest time of year for new orleans so can you like all the loss of income like Mm-hmm. that's awful and, and no I haven't been part of a, a campaign like that oh gosh I can't I can't imagine what that would be like but I mean luckily here on the west coast generally things have been pretty like liberal in terms of like people's attitudes towards at least strippers specifically strippers I mean other parts of sex work like escorting and pornography I just feel like the again like the horography horography horarchy is present there just because people think that's a lot more harmful than say work work in the club so Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
Yeah, which is like another is it, what topic. What is it? A Nordic model, or is it like partial, or? Yeah, Nordic model. So oh. yeah, like it's it's just uh, it's just problematic. I have so many thoughts yeah. <laughs> thoughts on the topic, but yeah, like it's it's just wild. <laughs> But I mean, yeah, uh, I mean, Seattle is also the Nordic model too. Like, I always forget that. I always think all of America is like full criminalization. But mm-hmm. I guess there's a lot of. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there a lot of like Norwegian like parts people in that part of the world? Like there from like Norway and Sweden and Denmark. I'm not sure. And, like, like Vancouver and Seattle. Okay. Um, I can definitely say there's a lot of Asians as, as an Asian person, there's a lot of an Asian population yeah. here. It's very, it's very diverse. Seattle is also pretty, um, diverse as well. Cause then back when the borders are open, I used to go there pretty frequently. It's only like a couple hours drive, but yeah, I mean, oh, you, I could be wrong. <laughs> Not sure of the, of those specific demographics, but I mean, who knows? <laughs> um, I guess like going back, yeah. since I, t- sorry, I tend to go on tangents. <laughs> no, tangents are good. Tangents are good. Tangents are good. I mean, like, there's, there's been, um, gosh, I mean, with the rise of the internet, I thought that was a really interesting part of the article that you wrote in, you know, went, um, it kind of just like evolutionized before when the topic, um, or the focus was like, beware of men in white vans, like, don't trust those types of men and then now with like the internet it's more like men behind screens and like catfishing but I mean generally speaking it's still like a very predatory type of nature um Mm -hmm. did you want to speak a little bit about um that kind of shift a bit yeah 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 and I um there's always been like even there's always been this like really interesting I mean relationship between like this belief that there are like, children working in, like, the sex industry or that there's, like, child porn being made in the sex industry. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was, like, part of, like, the raids in Times Square was oh. that they were, like, carried out in the name of, like, anti-porn and they, like, shut down all these XXX businesses. And what? There's just this huge... Yeah, it's... The history behind it is wild, like, of oh the, what happened to the sex industry, the visible yeah. sex industry in the States. Like, it was usually... It's all been carried out in the name of, like anti-child porn um and this was like you know in the 80s when child porn really wasn't like a problem then um Mm -hmm. it was largely like this fabricated epidemic that they sort of made up to sort of do what they're doing now get rid of you know get rid of the sex industry and get rid of like adult pornography but in sort of like in the 90s came around and chat rooms came a thing and sort of children like adolescents got all of this like independence from their families and from because of the internet and mm-hmm. this sort of like fear got whipped up again of these like predatory men or these like so-called like creepy men like lingering in chat rooms and talking to girls and then like luring them into these like traps and then mm-hmm. abducting them um you know and it's not that to say that these things don't happen they have happened but it's like a very rare like elizabeth smart kind of Mm-hmm. happening right and then like they're building policy off of like one or two instances when like 99 percent right. of it is not occurring in that way yeah um, but yeah it's also a way to like by putting the man behind the screen by putting you know the fear it's a way to sort of like 
distract us from who was actually doing it. Yeah. You know, it's a way to like blank out who was actually doing the harming. Um, yeah, totally. And who was actually taking photos, things like that. Yeah, because like basically you're able to identify and put blame on somebody. And it, as like, I thought this is really interesting. Um, I'm just going to quote a bit of the article that you wrote here. But in terms of the statistics, which is actually from a Canadian study, yay! Um, <laughs> but 82% of sexual abuse material organized by a direct family member. So as you said, like it could be your uncle or maybe a neighbor or your, your father or something like that. And then on the flip side, it's like, Four percent of abuse occurred by strangers when the child is being victimized by one person, and only two percent when children are abused by multiple people. Like that's a huge, like a vastly huge difference, you know, in terms of statistics. Yeah, yeah. like I was insane. Yeah, really shocked to hear me that, and I also like you know it was interesting. I was really shocked that like. This concept, I guess I, I never really sat down to think about child pornography or images of child sexual abuse, however we want to call it. But mm-hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm sitting down, I was like, oh, like, child pornography is a result of child sexual abuse. Like, uh, and child sexual abuse goes on in the home. Like, for, I don't know why, I must have thought that, like, yeah, it was just happening, like, girls were being lured off men by, off chat rooms, and then they were, like, these illegal syndicates. It didn't really occur to me that, like, it's just these people's parents taking photos of them yeah. and they're putting them on the internet and like it's occurring inside the home. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that article, I mean, the essay that you quoted, not for the faintest, <laughs> but mm. that was what the most shocking thing to me about that was that like, it's not only just like people's parents, but a lot of times like the, like the network is the family. It's yeah. like mom, dad, grandma, are involved and sometimes that they like get other people involved as well so they'll like drop off their kid for the weekend at like uncle barry's house and uncle barry takes Mm -hmm. the photos and then they over the weekend they send them back and then mom and barry uncle barry share that money that they get from the photos so like yeah i um i just wasn't aware that that was like happening because what we're taught is that it's like happening in strip clubs or it's happening behind the internet. We're not taught that like there's like all this incest going on inside families and Mm -hmm. like there's these really sort of dysfunctional families happening and that's like where children are being harmed. Um, Yeah. No one one speaks about that. Difficult read. Yeah. I have not, I mean, I was trying to read through a little bit of it, but I was like, Oh, it's too early for this right now. I, Need to have my coffee. It's a lot to digest and it's like just very heavy. So um, it's the Canadian Center of Child Protection um, Survivors. uh, What I wrote wrote here. Survivors Survey um, in 2017 edition. So feel free to take a read if you feel brave. It really just makes me sick just to hear about this kind of stuff i'm not sure and you also have some great podcast recommendations and documentary recommendations too i want to ask you have have you listened to the hunting warhead podcast i have not what is that oh my gosh reese you have to listen to it it's just literally this very topic about a specific case where they were able to entangle um one of the biggest like child sex trafficking rings that was based in in Canada and the U.S. 
So it was pretty big, but it, it touches on some of the points that we we spoken about here in terms of like, you know, how um, this is orchestrated by family members. So I'd highly, highly, highly recommend. And anyone listening, it's like one of the best podcasts I've listened to in all time. But also, again, really just dark and heavy material when it comes to that. But definitely recommend listening to that. <laughs> Yeah, it's good because there's not a lot of info out there, like, no. on it and, like, what it looks like, yeah, what it looks like inside families, and that's, like, and what's actually happening and how is it being orchestrated, mm-hmm. and, yeah, I think it's really important that these, like, podcasts exist because one of the most, like, poignant things that becomes clear to me is that, like, these things are still going to happen if, even if there's no internet, like, yeah. the network is there, like, yeah. they, they don't need the internet to form a network, like, the network is their families, it's their friends. And so, like, all this abuse is still going to happen. They're still going to be able to, like, swap photos. Yes. If they can't, they don't have the internet. And it just becomes even clearer to me that, like, they don't need to wage this war on the internet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because, like, I mean, a lot of this stuff is happening on the dark web as well. And when one site goes down or gets confiscated by the government, um, another one will pop up. just as quickly as it was taken down so it's like this is it ceases to persist and it's um unfortunately like a really awful problem that's going to happen like whether or not the internet is there or not you know like these communities exist people have contacts with each other it's just gonna keep circulating unfortunately yeah exactly and unless like we sort of tackle what's going on inside like and figure out like what is sort of driving these sort of networks and like is it just like money or is there like sort of dysfunction that's passed from de- generation to generation like mm-hmm. we're never gonna it's never gonna heal yeah um yeah so i think I, this whole article i think it took me about like three months because like wow. some of it just took me some time to digest that to yeah. like really let that like sink that like these like so-called like pedophile rings are just like families yeah that's like such a gross thing to think about, but unfortunately it is the hard facts and the hard truth. And we need to just yeah. focus on that as opposed to focusing on sex workers. And like, it's just, it significantly harms us as a marginalized group. Like we're already marginalized, but this marginalizes mm-hmm. us even further. So It does, and it's like, we're just like scapegoats. This whole like, totally situation, you know, and like it's, it allows people to sort of that's like my whole thoughts on QAnon is that mm-hmm. like they are processing this abuse that's going on inside of families, but they can't they can't face the families, and mm. so they like make up these like satanic pedophiles rings, and right. I feel like that's what like politicians do with sex work is that like they they know that abuse is going on, we're aware of it. Like, we just kind of had the Me Too movement, and we're aware that these things are happening, but we cannot face the family. So we're like, let's turn towards sex work, because they are the problem. Let's, like, look outside the home. Right. Because, you know, there's the answer. Yeah. It just seems too easy, you know? Like, just let's just pick a group to blame, to apply blame on. And it's just like, well, this isn't the answer (laughs) at all. So, I mean... Going back to um, what we mentioned earlier, CISEA, so again, Stop Internet Sexual Exploitation Act. This is like rather new, as you mentioned. Do you want to speak a little bit about that and how 
harmful this can be and like what the impact and um, what this could mean for sex workers? Yeah. Um, it was, so it was in response to a column in the New York Times by, mm-hmm. you know, the infamous Nicholas Kristoff, who was like, right. wannabe Captain save But, um, <laughs> yeah, so he has notoriously written, like, really sensationalist pieces about sex work. A lot of them are not based in reality. Mm-hmm. Some of them are based in reality, but just without the nuance that it serves. Um, mm. So he wrote a column about people's uh, underage underage minors, including teenagers and people under than 12, like children under than 12, uh, their videos ending up on the internet on Pornhub and them not being able to take them down for various reasons because they're keeping getting reproduced. And sort of his sort of attack was that like Pornhub is not doing enough to help these people and that like they are then monetizing off of this, that they're like cultivating a... Um, a culture of child sexual abuse and they're like i think he actually used monetizing child rape oh, man. and um reading his column it for all it was i think it patched together maybe like six stories of minors that this happened to and except for one who we didn't get the backstory of hmm. all of the photos were taken by either a boyfriend or a family member or an adopted like or the adopted family right and and that's kind of when I was like, well, why is porn to blame when mm-hmm. these people's families are taking it? Yeah. But, you know, his, so in response to his column, which of course, because it's in the New York Times and, you know, people really respect the New York Times, there was a bipartisan bill by Ben Sass in Nebraska and Jeff Merkley in Oregon, mm. um, which Stop Internet, ex, Stop Internet Sexual Exploitation Act and sort of it's, like on the outside, its goal is to prevent this from happening, is to make it safer, I guess, for children who are being exploited and they don't end up on the internet. Right. But it's at, at its core, it's just censorship. Because so what they want is they want that videos have to be taken down within two hours. Right. So like if yes. you've ever, um, like a DNC takedown. So if you've ever like had your videos like pirated, Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you can contact the website and maybe they'll go back to you in a week or maybe they never get back to you. Yeah. It's a problem. Um, yes. But two hours is an extremely tight window. Yeah. They, <laughs> yeah. Like, how like, are you going to do think... that? <laughs> it's just like, doesn't yeah. seem like realistic at all, but okay. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, like, it's just, how can they, they would need such a huge amount of staff. Yeah. And yeah, it's, it's definitely that's definitely a problem and then they also want to create a database Mm. where like if you've been like you can kind of tell them that you your videos have been up if you're kind of like i guess a previous victim and then every new video has to be checked up against that which is like absurd because who wants to keep a database of sex workers like yeah no oh my gosh (laughs) i remember reading that i'm just like what how is this ever going to work like, how much money yeah. do they have? Like, <laughs> and the scary part is, is that, like, it seems like it's, well, it seems like a great thing. Like, so I, when I researched this article, I, like, talked to all these, like, ex- these so-called experts on child sexual abuse, and, like, oh, that sounds like a great article. And I was, like, but you're not getting it because, like, people don't see sex workers and they don't see, mm-hmm. like, they don't view our work as legitimate, mm-hmm. you know? And so 
it's just, oh, it doesn't matter if the porn company gets shut down. It doesn't matter if thousands of sex workers are lost to income. People don't even see that. They're so blind to that. And, right. you know, they think it's, it's just anything that stops children, like anything that stops children from ending up on the internet is great. Yeah, exactly. But, you know, that's what one, one woman I interviewed with. She's like, well, if there's any video ever that shows up on a website, that website needs to be shut down. But mm. it's like, well, they took it down eventually. And it doesn't mean that the abuse is, the abuse is still going on. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, it's still going on behind the camera, whether or not it ends up on the internet or not, it's still going on. And yeah, I, it's complicated because I absolutely don't want like a seven year old's videos ending up on a website, whether it's the dark web or the main web. Right. But in many ways, like, at least the internet makes it visible. At least we're able to, like, see that there's a problem. Mm-hmm. Versus, like, before we weren't. And, yeah. And so I guess that is what, like, the bill is aimed to do. And right. if it goes through, it will absolutely destroy the porn industry. It will collapse yeah. it into one monopoly. And because no one, no, none of these smaller sites are going to have the infrastructure to pay for that. Right. If they yeah. cannot have a staff ready to take down videos in two hours. And ironically, the only company that will be able to afford it is MindGeek, which owns Pornhub. Yeah. And Pornhub is the one under attack anyway. And so yeah. it's just going to like literally uplift them even more, make yeah. them a larger monopoly. Exactly. Like, I hope this doesn't go through. So, I mean, again, like because of your article, I was just really, again, it's something that I just didn't really know what was happening and what those implications would be. So thank you so much for, for bringing this to light and also coming onto the show to speak about this because it's a huge, huge, huge topic. And again, it's the implications would be rather harmful and would be completely detrimental to the porn industry. So yeah. Yeah. Craziness. And like, if, I thought that would actually make a difference in like this problem of child sexual abuse that we have in the Western world. I would be like, okay, maybe it's a good thing, but it, it doesn't, it's not going to stop it. As mm-hmm. we know, like these, none of these laws, none of these censorship laws have changed child sexual abuse. Like the rates are pretty much the same since the same. 1950. Right. There's some evidence that it's gone down since 1990, but if you look at self-reports, which is people reporting from when they're older. Mm-hmm. It says it's pretty much been at 20% since 1950, 20% of the population Crazy. of females, that 10% crazy. of altogether men and women. So yeah, like it, it's been clear to us that like none of these laws, like none of these laws that are attacking pornography or attacking the visible sex industry mm-hmm. have helped. So yeah, it's, it's just a flimsy. It's like yeah. a disguise, I guess. And as he said, um, a distraction. You know, it's a distraction. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Definitely. This is incredible. Thank you so so much again for just being able to articulate this because this, as you said, this takes like months and months of work and also just a look a lot of research for you to really break um, break this down. So thank you so much, Reese. There are a number of questions that came in for you <laughs> as well. So if you don't mind, why don't we switch on over to that portion of the podcast and uh, I guess we'll just roll with it. Sure. Yeah. So 
first few questions are to do with autism. So I know this person who's also a sex worker, she works with people with ASD. So she's really, really curious to hear um, about this. So um, how did Reese navigate the clubs with a person who has ASD? Like she's more curious about like the sensory aspect in terms of like loud noise, social interaction, and you touch you guys, there's too much or too little stimulation. Can you speak to us a bit about that? Yeah, so I am both like hyposensitive and hypersensitive. So like when mm. we think of like an autistic child, like a stereotypical one, we're seeing one that's like can't take loud music, cannot take mm-hmm. um, bright lights, it needs like calm, it needs sort of headphones. Like if you've watched Atypical, mm-hmm. that's like the character in there. He's like very hypersensitive. Right. Um, a lot of autistic people are the opposite. We're hyposensitive. And so like we crave touch, we crave stimulation, we crave sort of more sensations. Um, and so I, I switch between both. And mm-hmm. so the beauty of the club is that like, if I'm walking in and like the lights and the noise is like painful on my skin, I just don't go to work that day, which mm. is fantastic. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> yeah, I That's mean, great. sometimes like I, the, the downfall of that is that I can't work in a club that made me maintain a schedule. I've always been lucky to find one. Um, And I enjoy the touch. I don't always enjoy, like, what the territory, what it comes with that. Mm -hmm. Um, Like, meaning, like, having to, like, watch out for assault and just having to, like, deal with customers wanting more. But in terms of, like, how it's helped me, it's kind of almost like a weighted blanket, if that makes sense. Like, the pressure is really nice. Mm. Um, Interesting. Yeah. yeah. Really cool perspective. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, yeah, thank you. Did Reese ever meet a patron with ASD? If so, how is at interacting with um, a person with ASD or autism? None of my, I think, clients have ever said so. Mm-hmm. Um, I certainly met a lot of dyslexic patients clients and like I can tell when they sign the receipt that sometimes they'll sign it backwards mm, and then, yeah so I think that there has been like moments like that where I'm like oh like you know I'm like that or you know because I do think that there's something about having autism both from the client perspective and from the stripper perspective that the strip clubs feels like enticing because it's a contained relationship mm-hmm. and something about that that feels safer mm-hmm. for people um, like the script is easier and like even for clients like they know they don't have to like have all this emotional labor outside of the relationship in the club it's just in that one moment and I think right. there's something relieving about that um yeah in terms of like have I had one that's like been openly diagnosed um no but I also don't tell clients uh, yeah either um yeah. I might say um, but like, I, I do sometimes admit that I'm dyslexic because I mean, also because it's like a fun thing to do with customers. Like, Oh, I don't know the price of a champagne room. Sorry. Like I, I'm really bad at math. <laughs> I like that. I like that play yeah. on. <laughs> that works. You know, it's kind of like a sales technique. But, totally. Um, yeah. So I don't tell them. And so I guess for my own safety, because I believe that people might take advantage of me. Yeah. But, Definitely. And that was like this person's next question. Like, did she ever tell people that she has ASD? But yes, the answer um, for you is no. Because, yeah, for your own safety, your own anonymity, 
I think, um, as you mentioned, uh, it would just be a safer option, I would say. Like, I don't, I don't think I would ever want to disclose that information. And I, I don't want to assume for you that's not coming from, like, a stigma point, but it's more for, more so in terms of, like, your own safety. Is that, that yeah. that's correct? Yeah. Definitely. I mean, autistic women are abused at, like, really high rates, and, like, it's not something that I am, I'm never going to admit that kind of weakness in the club, and not that, it's a complicated word, but yeah, I mean, yeah. I guess disability is, there's nothing wrong with having a disability, but yes, people perceive it as weakness, and I also, like, there are times, like, when I go into the club that I don't feel autistic, because again, there's so many like accommodations, like I can mm-hmm. show up, I don't always have to be there, like the conversation is contained. And so like, it is kind of nice to just have like that escape where I'm like, yeah. not myself, <laughs> you know, like just a break from who I am. Yeah, definitely. Um, like bringing all this like baggage into the club is, I don't know, it's heavy, if that makes sense. And no, it's trippy, yeah. you kind of need to be there. No, yeah, that definitely makes sense for sure. How did Reese know that they wanted to be a stripper? So at the beginning, I just was in a lot of debt and I was just depressed. Like, so I needed a change and Mm -hmm. I, again, I'm a really bad at admin work. And like, I honestly think if I had been a better multitasker, I just would have worked in a bar. But like, (laughs) that wasn't enough. You know, I just knew that like, I can't, I could never do that work. And so it was just something I tried out and it was the way immediately that I noticed that like a lot of the girls were like me, you know, like I remember mm-hmm. my first time when I walked in, yeah, this girl was just like, um, the first time I was in the dressing room, this girl was like, oh, you know, you're being late. She talked to the manager and she's like, oh no, I was just too busy sucking cock all day. And I was like, <laughs> you know, that's just something that I would have said so like blatantly. And I, was like, and I remember I went home to my boyfriend at the time and I was like, he asked me how it was. And I was like, the girls, they're like me, like they're, you know, there's something about it, like stripping, I think that really attracts like difference. And I think that's why I stayed for so long. Yeah. Yeah. Long five years. I mean, I guess that's long as tripping years, not for a career. (laughs) (laughs) Still long. It's still a considerable amount of time. So (laughs) yeah. (laughs) Um, I believe you've already kind of answered this throughout the podcast, but like, how did you get into stripping? I don't know if you want to answer that again or skip. (laughs) Yeah, I think just I think we've covered it. When I was in Australia and needed money and just meeting other strippers in the business um, kind of just helped me see that it's like, oh, it is something I can do. It just made it a bit more accessible being away mm-hmm. and meeting other people. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess the last one here is, is there a different kind of stigma when you're a stripper with autism? Does that mean like, um, together, or is there like more stigma about being a stripper, or more stigma about being autistic? Um, you're welcome to answer the question however you define it. Uh, there's no other backstory behind yeah. the question, but yes, however you perceive it to be. I think there is something like really interesting about like the stigma of autism, where like people are just mm-hmm. confused, like when mm-hmm. I tell them, and they're like, "Wait, what?" and and then I kind of have to like explain, you know, oh, well, autism looks different in women. I was mm-hmm. diagnosed later. So like I'm able to mask and, you know, 
even though like all these all these people are coming out, like Greta Thunberg and um, Hannah Gatsby are coming out as autistic, like it's still mm-hmm. sort of seen as like this little boy's disorder, and that's right. fine. because lots of little boys have autism, but yes. So, I would say that like the stigma with that is that like people really are dismissive, and there's something quite um, lonely about that, and it can be mm-hmm. quite like almost annihilating because then I have to really be sure about myself you know because sometimes I'm like wait what like do I have this thing like if no one sees it like why am I the only one seeing it versus like stripping I know what I'm getting like I know that people think I'm dirty I know that some men think that I'm undateable I know Mm -hmm. that like I might just be seen as sexual but like I can handle that because no one's gonna say like you're not a stripper yeah (laughs) you know (laughs) (laughs) like no one is denying that experience no um yeah, in terms of, like, is there a particular stigma about being an autistic stripper? Is No, because I honestly, I think that they're similar. Like, mm. the stigma against, like, neurodivergence, especially neurodivergent women, and the stigma against sex workers is similar. Like, yeah. they're outside the norm, you know? Totally. Yeah, that's a great point to make, actually, because, um, I mean... With with sex work, I feel like, um, I feel like, I know that there's already an existing stigma when you um, get into the work, and it's just something that has always been there uh-huh. going into it, right? And, and if I'm speaking broadly as well, there's also a huge stigma with any type of disability yeah, as well. Definitely. Yeah. Like, did you want to speak yeah. a little bit about that part as well, just um, as a broad stroke? Yeah, I mean, I think it's really quite easy to see the stigma with physical disabilities, and we can see, like, right. how we don't make space. Like, you know, New York, only, like, certain amount of subways have are accessible, like, and that's not really, in 2020, that's not acceptable. Yeah. Um, I would, what I call it, I have an invisible disability, and ADHD, mm-hmm. what that comes, it's not that, like, people I'm being stigmatized by my body the way that someone with physical Mm -hmm. like in the way that I move through this world there isn't a lot of forgiveness so like again if I'm late people think I'm rude or if I can't like show up on time for my friend you know like I sometimes have to cancel a lot and so these are small like little ways that like I am sort of stigmatized by it and like they sort of like can break me down and yeah and like yeah because it's seen as like a character flaw and that's where mm-hmm. like invisible disability I think is in how it manifests because it's like the blame is put on the person right um yeah and it's still there even though it's not like even though it's invisible there's just, like the stigma is still there because it's still happening it's just the, per- the perception of it is different totally because you have, and this is my question <laughs> that I'm just thinking of right now, um, because you have an invisible disability, do you ever get instances where people just don't believe you? Yeah, all the time. My parents yeah. don't to this day. Oh, wow. So um, they're still like in denial. Yeah. I mean, yeah. with my parents, a lot of it is because there's a lot of undiagnosed autism in my family. Right. And like, in order for them to accept me, they need to look at themselves and mm-hmm. they're like not capable of doing that. Right. Yeah, and also, like, my mom grew up really poor, and, like, you know, there's just such um, a fear of disability in the poor community, because it, you know, can mean death, and mm-hmm. like, it's like you don't have the same amount of resources, and you have to really survive. So, I mean, I would say that like, the majority of 
people don't. And like the craziest wow. thing is that in order for me to get people to believe me, I have to really state it very clearly. And mm. the irony of that is that like in order to ha- like part of autism is not being able to speak very well. Oh my um, gosh. No. So like, <laughs> in order for people to believe that I'm autistic, I have to be like, no, this is how it is. Yeah. This is who I am. And like <laughs> the irony in that. Oh my God. Never yeah. That's so, oh my gosh. That's so annoying because like, like I just feel like you shouldn't have to explain yourself or like justify why you have this disability. Like why do I have to prove it to you? You know, like, yeah, that's so exhausting. Jeez. Yeah. It, I don't um. I don't like immediately tell people, but when I do, like, if I'm starting a new friendship with someone mm-hmm. or a relationship, I might say, like, just a heads up, like, I might have to cancel plans. It's not personal. It's just like I have this disability, and that's when it won't like come up. And so that's kind of like mm. how I frame it, and that's helped a lot because before yeah. I would just wait until someone got pissed off, and then I would explain. Mm. And now I like can frame the situation a bit better. I like that. That's that's a pretty um, yeah I guess digestible way of presenting that in your friendships and your relationships that you've built and foster. So really cool. Yeah. Wow. Um, I mean, this is such an enlightening conversation too in terms of like invisible disabilities. If anyone wants to listen about uh, disability um, and sex work in a physical capacity, then listen to episode fifty-one. That's um, really an, an interesting episode with Raphael Hotrod who has a very physical uh, disability who's confined to a wheelchair. So listen to that to see how he navigates that. But this conversation was just like next level. I truly enjoyed like having you on the show. I'm so glad that we were able to connect on this and for you to share all of your research and findings on the topic of child sex sex abuse and also with the new proposed bill that hopefully won't – get enacted and of course talking about (laughs) yeah like let's hope fingers crossed so that doesn't happen jeez um but Reese it was so great to have you on the show uh thank you so much for taking time out of your I guess now it's uh lunchtime where you are in New York so yeah thank you so much for having me and thank you so much for allowing me to speak about this and no problem yeah, enjoy the rest of your morning oh wait before i let you go where can we find you <laughs> uh, you mention. can find me on twitter i'm just reese piper i'm pretty active there awesome um or my website and which is also hold on let me look that up <laughs> i love it you're like wait a minute which <laughs> is also just reesepiper.com perfect so i'll be able to plug those links in the show notes if you peeps haven't checked it out yet and don't forget it's new episodes every single sunday and it is stripped by sia on instagram or my personal sia steph i'm also steph sia on twitter where i'm now becoming more active and don't forget to like rate share review and subscribe and we'll catch everyone in for a new episode next week thanks reese thank you bye-bye You're listening to Strip by Sia, hosted, produced, and edited by Steph Sia, artwork by Maria Bellandorama, music by Ted D, and photography by Ian Dabber.